morning. Good morning. I decided after last week that we'll just make that a theme song of this whole series. <coughs> start here week two of this series on uh, Philippians. So let's pray before we get started. Father, we give you thanks, Lord, for, uh, for this day, for all that in it. And Father, for these words that uh, in your book that we will explore today. Lord, I just pray that, uh, that what comes forth are your words, your thoughts, your desires, your love for Well, one concept that sort of has occurred to me that, that, that really any serious student of the Bible needs to understand is not that, um, is the fact that biblical details are kind of selective. All right, what do I mean by that? Well, the Bible is really designed to trace only the course of events that are essential to the balanced revelation of God's redemptive plan, right? And he's trying to help us understand this. But, uh, so in the composition of the Bible, when God puts the Bible together, it seems that he really was not all that concerned with catering to human curiosity. You know, and so this selective silence of the scriptures, if you will, is, is a subtle, albeit a very profound, evidence of its divine origin. Doesn't tell us everything we want to know. It tells us about what God wants us to know. However, that is a little consolation when we're interested in learning more about something that we skipped. So, and it seems like more often than not that our questions seem to center around things that actually aren't in Scripture rather than things that are. Allow me to illustrate. So, for example, take for example, and this is a picture of Mamertine which is believed where both Peter and Paul spent time uh, when they were in Rome. Uh, so take, for instance, Paul's imprisonment during the time that he wrote this letter to the Philippians. Okay. Other than the fact that Paul says he's in prison and he mentions the fact that he's in chains, there's really not a lot in this letter to the Philippians that kind of helps us understand what that experience might have been like. All right. We can pick up a few additional details from the Acts of the Apostles. Where he's writing. And so from there, we know that he and Silas were first severely beaten with rods. And then the jailer was instructed by the magistrates of the city to keep them securely. And so the jailer complies with this by placing the two prisoners in the innermost cell, presumably one without windows or much in the way of ventilation. They were also chained and their feet fastened in stocks. And those stocks also serve as an instrument of torture because their legs would likely have been painfully stretched apart. Now, all of this offers us a glimpse of what it might have been like in a Roman prison, but it certainly isn't the whole story. For example, we don't know how often they were given food. 
We don't know what it smelled like, although consumption would be probably enormous. We don't know if they were ever given any time outside of their cell, the way modern prisoners are in our jails and prisons. We don't know how often, if ever, they were allowed to bathe. We don't know what kind of extreme temperatures they may have been under. Now, all that aside from what we do know and then what we can guess, this would have been a truly hellish experience, in all likelihood surpassing by far anything that you or I would deal with today and on our worst days. And yet, as we talked about last week, there's this constant refrain of joy throughout this letter. So where does the joy come from? Well, again, because biblical history is selective, the Bible doesn't say, come you know, right out and say, well, Paul was joyful because of A and B and C and D and whatever. But if we look at what it does say, there certainly are some lessons here that we can learn about joy in the midst of suffering. And so, in this section of the text today, which is uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through first part of verse 18, verse 18 uh, we're going to study those lessons because they're front and center, and they really sort of form the main idea for the lesson today, which is this, that your negative circumstances can have positive results. Your negative circumstances can have positive results. So let's begin by looking at this next section of chapter 1. As I said, it's verses 12 through 18a. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along with have uh, the text up here on the screen. So let's dive in, starting at verse 12. It says, And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. It's true some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I have been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful for me. But that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, message about Christ is being preached either way. So what exactly is Paul saying to the church today, to this church today, through a letter written to a different church 2,000 years ago? Well, I think if we relate it back to this main idea that I showed, the question we would ask in this is, well, how can my negative circumstances have a positive First of all, I think they do when your circumstances serve a great purpose. Now, one of the most dramatic stories anywhere in ancient literature is that of Joseph, the second youngest son of Jacob, the patriarch of the Israelites. And the story spans about a dozen chapters in Genesis, so instead of reading that, I'll just summarize. Work for you? Or would you rather have that? 
of all, we know about Joseph that his father spoiled him rotten, and his older brothers were very jealous. And so, uh, at first they wanted to kill him, and then one of the brothers sort of had a change of heart, thought that wasn't probably the best answer, so they decided to sell him into slavery. So then Joseph is taken by the slave traders to Egypt, and he became the trusted servant of a brand new master. And that worked great until his master's wife accused him of trying to molest her in the head, and he was thrown into prison. Well, he was in there for a while, actually years, and suddenly was brought out of prison to interpret uh, dreams of Pharaoh, who was king of Egypt. And he did it with such success that Pharaoh puts him in charge of this major interest or major national project to help alleviate the famine that's coming. And so, as he's in that capacity, we have an interesting turn of events. The tables kind of turn. Now he finds himself selling food to his own brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery, but they don't know it's him. So, eventually, having tricked them to test their state of heart, and so the story ends happily with the whole family surviving the famine and ultimately settling there in Egypt. But this goes on for a while, and then Jacob, the father, dies. And at this point, Joseph's brothers are, are kind of worried that now that dad's dead, that uh, Joseph is going to take revenge on them because of what they had done to him so long ago. So they come to tell him that Jacob, their father, had told them to seek his forgiveness. Joseph's reply is one of the most memorable statements of faith anywhere in the Bible. This is what he says. Don't be afraid. Don't suppose that I am Joshua. After all, you meant evil against me. God. Now, Paul seems to have something of that same confidence in God's uh, overruling power, even when everything else seems to be going against him or going wrong. What Joseph said, he did with hindsight. He probably clung to God with hope all throughout that story. Paul, on the other hand, is saying this while the story is going on. It's right in the midst of it. But Paul, of course, knows of a much more recent story in which another Jew who was falsely accused by his own people suffered the extreme penalty at hands of wicked people and still demonstrated through his resurrection that God can be forgiven. And so with this story of Jesus echoing and bringing into focus the mainline Jewish belief that Israel's God, Yahweh, would somehow strangely produce good out of evil. We perhaps shouldn't be surprised at this robust statement of belief that Paul now produces. Paul points to his own persecution and his present imprisonment in Rome. And he says that instead of hampering the gospel, these negative circumstances have actually advanced it. Paul really seems to be reassuring the Philippians in this church that even though his movements are Mere human constraints can't 
doesn't dwell on his own suffering. He rejoices in the progress of the gospel. And from his own experiences, Paul wanted the believers in Philippi to learn an important truth, that there are no accidents to suffering. Instead of Paul's ministry being curtailed because of his bondage, it's actually spreading as he Paul had come to understand this, and now he wants the Philippians to know it as well, that beyond any doubt that his imprisonment has actually helped to spread the good news. Although one of Christianity's most tireless missionaries had been in prison, God's work couldn't be closed out. And it's interesting because this phrase in that text, help to spread, is also translated furthering. And it comes from a Greek word meaning to cut away, cut the way before. So picture pioneers kind of charting, un, you know, charting, cutting through uncharted territory. Never, nobody's ever been there before, so they have to hack a path through the woods or the jungle or wherever they may be. It brought to my mind the chorus of a song I've been hearing on my David Crowder station on Pandora by a band <coughs> named The Focus. And the chorus says this, you can bury the workmen, but the work will still go on. And you can silence the voices, but you can't stop the song. When the spirit's moving, his will will be done. You can bury the workmen, but the work will go on. Now, as I was thinking about it, the subtitle of this section could also be, it's not always about me. Now that thought's not meant to minimize or trivialize pain that can accompany negative circumstances. But if we don't believe that God is in every aspect of our lives, don't we have to believe that he's in the negative stuff too? After all, Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things, some things, Good things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose. So maybe, instead of saying, poor pitiful me, we need to start saying, Lord, help me too. The testimony of Paul and Joseph and ultimately Jesus remind us that our circumstances can serve a second point is that the way you respond can encourage others. See, with Paul not having the freedom to minister where he pleased, other believers had taken up the baton, come up to the plate to speak the word of God in place of Paul. When you think about it, you know, conventional or worldly wisdom would seem to tell you that this threat of jail would actually make a Christian fearful Yet the opposite is what we see. God saw fit to use what looked like a setback to actually bring him honor. Paul's confinement was doing what his circumstances outside of prison could never do. Not only was the gospel being spread through Paul in prison, because it talks about the guards that are there coming to faith, because they're observing this joyful man in the midst of awful situation. 
but his efforts are also being multiplied outside of the prison. So what we see is that Paul's faith and confidence and patience, in spite of his imprisonment, helped his fellow believers become more faithful, confident, and patient in God. So whatever it was, the, the reason that they lacked this confidence before, maybe they'd been afraid to speak up. Uh, maybe they just left all the missionary work to Paul because they could see he was good at it. Or maybe they really wondered if faith in God was worth the price. Whatever it was, they saw Paul's faith and it strengthened their own. And they began to tell the gospel with greater boldness and without so you have more and more believers gaining boldness and telling the gospel of Jesus Christ, and more and more people hearing that gospel and having the opportunity to accept it. And that is Paul's chief joy. So he passes this good news on to his friends in Philippi, so they would know how God was working through this difficult situation. And so it was Paul's response to his circumstances Is the way that you respond to negative circumstances more likely to turn someone toward Jesus or away from Jesus? Paul was in prison for the very reason that he was bold and without fear and to stand for Christ. And yet suddenly this instinct of self-preservation and all the people that, that knew this and were Christians began to wither away. So not only that, but it gave fresh encouragement to the body. I would imagine that when Paul arrived in their city as a prisoner, and they knew that it was because of the gospel, some of them probably wondered how safe it might be for them to even let it be known that they were of the same faith that he was. And according to Luke, the leaders of the Jewish community in Rome judged it best to know nothing about Paul or his then all of a sudden the gospel becomes a talking point because Paul is actually now in Rome and in prison. And so the Christians there exploit the situation and begin to bear their public witness with greater confidence and more vigor. When Paul says that this is true of most of the brothers, he doesn't mean that there was a minority who refused to seize the opportunity. He means that so many did so that their actions basically characterized the Roman church as a whole. And so nothing could get in the way of the gospel. Whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's fair or not, people are always watching. Especially if they know you're a Christian and they want you. And so when the hard things of life happen, <laughs> Will your response inspire them to learn more about the faith that is between you? Or will your response confirm what they already think they know about followers of Jesus? Maybe your response to negative circumstances in a new situation can help them. And finally, through negative circumstances, we have positive results. God.
in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 of, of 1 Peter, he writes this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when, note the word when, it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now according to John Piper, a noted pastor and author, he says, when you're thrown into cellars of suffering, keep on rejoicing. When you dive in the sea of affliction, keep on rejoicing. In fact, keep on rejoicing not in spite of the affliction, Cause of This is not a little piece of advice about the power of positive thinking. This is an utterly radical, abnormal, supernatural way to respond to suffering. It's not in our power. It's not for the sake of our honor. It is the way spiritual aliens and exiles live on the earth for the glory of the great King. Count it all joy when you meet various trials. Is foolish advice except for one thing. Peter gives us six reasons why we can keep on rejoicing when the suffering comes, and they all relate to God and ultimately to his glory. First of all, because the suffering is not a surprise but a pleasure. It's a strange, and third, and meaningless purpose. It's for your testing. Suffering is not outside the will of God, it is in the will of God's will. This is true even when Satan may be the immediate cause. God is sovereign over all things, including our suffering and including Satan. So reason number one that suffering is not surprising is that it's pain. It's a testing. It's a purifying fire. It proves and strengthens real faith and it consumes performance faith. What performance faith is? Performance faith looks good on the outside, but there's nothing on the inside to tie that to tie it down. If you want to, if you want to get rid of performance faith and get into some real faith, then rejoice in your suffering. Number two, because your suffering as a Christian is an evidence of your union with Christ. Keep on rejoicing, because your sufferings as a Christian are not just and they give evidence that you are united with Christ. Number three is because this joy is going to strengthen your assurance that when Christ comes in glory, he will rejoice forever with him. See, if we become embittered at life and at the pain that it deals us, we're not preparing to rejoice at the revelation of Jesus' work. So keep on rejoicing now in suffering in order that you might rejoice in exaltation of the revelation of his work. Number four, because then the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This means that in the hour of greatest trial, there is a great consolation. In the great suffering on earth, there is great support from heaven. You may think now that you will not be able to bear it. But if you are Christ, will be able to bear because he will come to you and rest upon you. As Rutherford said, the great king keeps his finest wine in the cellar of affliction. 
but not bring it out to serve with chips on Sunday afternoon. This is the Lord's standard. Five, because it glorifies God. Glorifying God means showing by your actions and attitude that God is glorious to you, that he is valuable, precious, desirable, satisfying. And the greatest way to show that somebody satisfies your heart is to keep on rejoicing in them when every other support for your satisfaction falls away. When you keep on rejoicing in God in the midst of suffering, it shows that God, not anything else, is the source of your joy. And sixth, and finally, because your Creator is faithful to care for your soul. Now, the degrees of suffering and the forms of affliction are very different for all of us. But the one thing that we all have in common until Jesus comes, we're all going to die. We will come to that awesome moment of reckoning. And if you have time, depending on how you die, you may see that your whole life is plain before you. And you ponder this idea of whether or not it's been well spent. You may tremble at the unspeakable reality that in any moment you are going to destiny of your soul is irrevocable. Will you rejoice in that all? You will if you entrust your soul to a faithful creator. He created your soul for his glory. He is faithful to that glory in all who love it and live for it. Now is the time to show where your treasure is. Is heaven now is the time to shine in the glory of God. So trust Him and keep on rejoicing. Paul is saying all this obviously to encourage the church in Philippi. But it really also ought to be a great encouragement to us. How often are we tempted to feel discouraged because the plans that we had were badly thwarted or because malicious people are trying to make our lives? We need to learn from Paul and long before he was Joseph. The art, maybe an art, of seeing God's purposes working out through problems and difficulties. God meant it for good. The king is being announced as not even a celebrant. So that is good to be that. Now to close, it occurred to me that Paul really is not only showing us how negative circumstances can have positive He's also demonstrating a truth about how to deal with negative circumstances in our life. And the truth is this, get your eyes off yourself and onto others. See, every negative situation comes with a choice. You can spend your time thinking about me, myself, and I, or you can turn your attention to others. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Many years later, that famous theologian Bob Dylan said that you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And if we sit around wallowing in misery and unplugging from life, are we not effectively serving the devil? 
when we become so self-focused, we are of no use to God or anyone else. The solution is to focus on others. Get out and serve someone. Volunteer in a hospital. Mow the lawn or rake the leaves for your elderly neighbors. Spend the day preparing meals for someone else with food bottles. Become a big brother or a big sister. Serve meals at a homeless shelter. Volunteer at a local school. Organize a yard sale and give all the money to charity. Coach a youth group team. Become a tutor. Foster a student athlete. I could go on. But the point is, stop believing that life is there to serve you. And go out and serve life. Let God handle the circumstances. He's big enough and powerful enough and smart enough to work it out. I promise. And it's in turning things over to God and focusing on others that your negative circumstances can and will have positive results. Amen? God is faithful. If anyone in the 60s ever wondered if Bob Dylan could have recorded a church? Probably not.
Song, Blessed Assurance, that we sang, it just brought back memories of my conversion. I didn't grow up going to church. I went to North Carolina State. I remember going out in circles.
Has anybody ever read that book, uh, Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges? Um, yeah, it's, it's his book um, that somebody gave me years ago and sat in my closet and collected dust for about, let's say, three years. Then one day I was having a, I mean, I'm just not in a good place. I was far from Christ and I just. I mean, I had nothing left to lose, so I dusted it off, and I started reading in the first chapter. I mean, I'm not sure if it was, I mean, just every chapter for every day since I've read it, every day, I, well, not every day. I, on the days I read one chapter, it seems like that one chapter is talking about something that is 
that happened to me that day, not even that day, like a few hours ago. And I, I believe that the first time it wasn't a coincidence, and I believe by the hundredth time that it happened, that is not a coincidence. If God is doing something for you and you feel it the hundred, if you feel it the first time, it's not a coincidence. If you feel it's a hundred, the hundredth time is a coincidence, I don't know what to tell you. There's no, there's no such thing as a hundred coincidences in a row. I've only read like five or six or seven chapters. No coincidence. God may not verbalize it like I'm doing right now. He, he don't, he, he don't need a microphone. He, he, he has, he can do something way better than we can. He, that, that phrase show you better than I can tell you. That's him. Shows you better than. We have our, uh, this is not to put it into this at all, just give some transition to our service. Perhaps folks around here ready, willing, pray with you, whatever it is that you may have need to. Uh, if you want to stay, you can worship, sit in the quiet, prayer. Feel like you have a word and it's for someone else that's sitting here, and this would be the time just to get up and just say, Look, I think this is what God may be saying to you. Share that. Um, if you need to leave for whatever reason, then you're welcome to do that as well. So I'm going to pray to a closing blessing on everyone and move into the next service. So, Father, I Thank you that it is possible to experience joy in the midst of our circumstances. And they are interesting but good. Continue to teach us more about how to do that. And give us the, the strength and trust to put those into practice. That they may not simply be words. We might stop focusing so much on ourselves. Paul could easily have done that. He could have just sat in prison and gone, gosh, I, look at all I've done, Lord, and this is what's happened. But he didn't. In the midst of those negative circumstances, he decided to write a bunch of letters. And what did he want to do? He wanted to encourage the churches that he helped start. Let us have that in My will is yours to do. So we give you thanks and we praise Father God. Regardless of our circumstances. I ask now that you would uh, just be in and bless each person here as they go out from this place and into the world around us. Let them not be 
President Putin with every aspect of your life. Bless them, keep them safe. Bring them back to the right time. Last all these things in your children's name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.